So today we're going to continue through the Word, and uh, as was mentioned, uh, we've been following the story of God, and we started this in January a year ago. So we haven't gone through every word of the Bible, but we've chronologically moved through history from before the creation of the world all the way through following this thread of who is God and where does he appear in his word and what's he doing through his word and the centerpiece of his word is Jesus. That's who he is. That's who God is. And that's what he's trying to tell us through the whole book. So we've been following that whole thread until we've literally come now to where we are at the point that Jesus, God, is on earth. He is here. He's among us. And he's living. And we've been kind of looking at his life now chronologically moving through. So last week, Josh preached on embracing the father and his father's day this week and this week. I got hell, so that's how that worked. Uh, but we don't align the word with American holidays. So sometimes it's magical and it works out, and sometimes it's just kind of like, what? So anyway, this week, uh, the title is Embracing Hell. It's what we came to. It's where we are. It's as good as it gets. And there's two messages that everybody hates hearing and most preachers hate preaching. And one is about money or giving, and the other is about hell. So... uh Settle in. That's all I know how to tell you because it's the word. It's the word of God. So settle in. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you guys know who he is. Most of you probably do, but he's a, was a brilliant man, uh, that's gone now. He lived in the early 1900s. He was an atheist and became a, not just a believer, but an apologist, somebody who argues for the evidence of God and the truth of scripture. Uh, he's written countless books that are used in seminaries. He's also written books that have turned into movies like the Chronicles of Narnia and all of those things. That's him. So C.S. Lewis once was told about a gravestone inscription and the inscription read, here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. And Lewis leaned over quietly and said, I bet he wishes that were true. Um, that's a powerful statement. And here's your one point. Here's your one point today. I always give you kind of a point to remember. It's up here. But this is not scripture. It's just a point. Your present life determines your eternal destiny. So it matters now what's in your heart and how you live. Okay? If there's a point to anchor yourself around as we walk through this scripture, that's it. And as we get into this, I want you to keep something in mind, okay? Keep something in mind. I'll remind you, but keep this in mind. Jesus is saying this. If your text has it, it's in red. You know, G, this is Jesus' words. So if you don't, if, if it's heavy, you're mad, you're frustrated, you don't like it, take it up with him. You know what I'm saying? It is all his word, but in this case, he's specifically saying it. So keep that, keep that in mind. Either it's true or Jesus is a liar. That's heavy, but I'm just telling you, either either what we're looking at is true or Jesus himself is a liar. And if, by the way, if you need a Bible, they're back in the back. You know that. Um, so here we go. Luke 16. Look at verse. We're starting verse 19. And Jesus has been ter- telling these parables and dealing with the Pharisees and all this kind of stuff and uh, dealing with the crowds and the, those who are disciples and the majority who are not. Uh, but here we come to verse 19 and he says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. This guy is living it up, boy. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. This is not the same Lazarus that Jesus raises from the dead. We'll look at that next week. 
this, but they, Jesus chooses that name or this is the person he names here. It's not the same guy. Verse 20 goes on. He says, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So, first off, is this allegory or is this truth? Is this reality? Is this a parable or is Jesus talking about history? There's a fair amount of debate on this topic. If you look at theologians and stuff, but let's consider, first of all, is it literal? Well, he uses a proper name. That's unusual. In no other parable does he name a name. So people say, well, this is literal because he's using the name. Typically, he would say a man or a vineyard or a fig tree. But here he's saying Lazarus and Hades and Abraham, like he's being kind of really specific. So. Some argue it's literal. The parable argument is pretty good, too, because he's been telling parables. And in verse 1 of the same chapter, he begins the same way. A rich man, dot, dot, dot. Here, a rich man, dot, dot, dot. So it's almost like, in a sense, it's continuing the line of parables. But it's definitely unique either way, what he's telling here. Here's the point not to miss. Parable or not, if it's not based in truth, it has no meaning at all. It has to mean something truthful or else there's no point in using it for a parable anyway. You know what I'm saying? It has to have truth in it somewhere. So what's the place he's talking about? Well, we use ESV here. I don't care which translation you use. That's just the one I prefer. So that's the one we have available. Uh, but if you were to grab a King James and maybe you have one of those in King James, it translates the word hell here instead of Hades. Uh, the truth is, it's not hell, it's Hades. There is a difference. I'm not calling King James wrong. I'm just saying when your brain thinks of it, you're thinking of different things. And let me explain what I mean. So let's get a couple of terms out. Heaven. All right. Heaven, in the biblical sense, is the permanent place of God. It's the city of God. It's the kingdom of God, the place, the, the you know, the place. It's the permanent. That, that, that's heaven. It's permanent. Hell in a biblical sense, is that lake of fire language. It's permanent as well. It's a, it's a different thing. It's a permanent place of suffering. It's a permanent place outside of God's presence. All right? Um, Abraham's side here. Some say Abraham's bosom. There's another translation that's paradise that is called. This place that Jesus is referring to here. It's a Hebrew idea of a place of blessing so it's not necessarily heaven where god's kingdom is or where his city is it is a place where the dead who are blessed go to be in a blessed environment so what better to call it than paradise the the hebrews would call it abraham's place and i'll tell you why in a second but that in their mind in the text is temporary it's not a permanent place uh, Sheol or Hades, 
Last ones here. Sheol or Hades, those are the same thing. Sheol is the Old Testament word. Hades is basically the, the New Testament reference to that Old Testament place called Sheol. Sheol, you may think, who cares? Well, it's 60 times in the Old Testament. More than 60 times. It's actually a pretty big deal to the Jewish people. It is always the place of the dead. So sometimes it's translated the grave, sometimes the pit. Uh, but that word Sheol is always a proper name for where the dead find themselves. And that particular place is not paradise. It's another you know, where in proximity, I don't know, but it's another type of place. And for the record, Hades is also, in Jesus' time, the Greek god of the underworld. So there's a bit of a reference that Jesus is playing with here, too. All right? So he's addressing his crowd. These are terms he's using, and they know what he's talking about to some degree. They recognize who these people are. But Hades and paradise, these things are only temporary. They're not permanent. And I can show you that in Scripture and one for it will be up here, but Revelation one eighteen, in the end, Revelation's last book, obviously we'll get to it, but Jesus says that he's the living one here. He says, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Literally says that. He says in Revelation 20, verse 13, uh, at the final judgment, he says, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, I'm not trying to get overly heavy here, just pointing out the fact that Hades and Hades is a temporary place. If it were not, then this verse would not make any sense. How do you get rid of, permanently dispose of? Something, a place in a sense. So where is it? Is it in the middle of the earth? That's what the Greeks say. Uh, if you go watch any form of sci-fi movie to some degree, they have some image of you know hell in the middle of the earth. Uh, no, I, I find that highly unlikely. You know, it, it, where is it? that? I'm not. I don't know. That disappoints you. I'm sorry. That's the end of that story. You know, I don't know. I know it's there. But I don't know where. I can give you all kinds of theories. We could sit here and talk theology over it all day long. But there's no reason to because the Bible doesn't tell us. And either way, Jesus is not concerned with where it's located. He's just telling you it's there. And these two dudes find themselves there. One other quick, fast note. The Catholics, uh, not all of them, but a majority, teach uh, purgatory, which is the idea that you go to a place they might call Hades, where you pay your dues for however long you're supposed to, and then you get out or you advance to heaven or whatever else. Nowhere in Scripture. I mean, I, I don't know how else to put that. If, you, if, if anybody ever brings that to your mind, ask them to show you where it is. Don't argue about it. Just say, show me where that is. And it's not there. It's not there. Nowhere. All right? Once it's over, it's over. Uh, the Mormons have a belief that... You'll get a second chance that you'll get to hear the gospel one more time after you die and you can decide then. That's also nowhere in scripture. Doesn't, it's nowhere. It's nowhere. So you, again, you don't have to fight about it. Just point out that, well, show me where that's at. It's not in there. Um, so is Hades what Jesus is talking about? Is this literal or, or what? Is this an actual description of the afterlife? Is this what we should expect? I, you know, maybe. 
I'll give you a couple of things for it. For one, in John 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare you a place and I will come back to get you. So if he's going to prepare a place, what we would call heaven, then that place, at least at Jesus' time, did not yet exist. Or else why would he say, I go to prepare something and then I I, I come back to get you? So if so, if that place had not existed, where are the people who were dead at that time? Uh, and where are the people that are dead today if he hasn't come back yet? You know, that's a, a, a common question. Also, there's an order to the resurrection of the dead. It says clearly in the scriptures, in Thessalonians, in Revelation, it talks about the resurrection of the dead occurring in a sequence. Christ, those who died in Christ first, those who are alive in Christ, and then those who have died prior to Christ by faith. So... Again, where are all these people awaiting this order of resurrection? Um, there's also an order of judgment into the lake of fire. I just read it to you. Uh, I didn't read all of it to you. In fact, if you look in Revelation, the way it goes is first it's the beast who deceives the people. We call the Antichrist or whatever. The beast. Then it is the false prophet. And then after that, it is the devil and the, all of his angels and then the people who have uh, died in sin without repenting. So there's an order. So again, these people got to be somewhere. So Jesus, one last argument, Jesus tells the thief on the cross as he's getting ready to die and the thief is getting ready to die. Today, you will be with me where? In paradise, right? To the mind, to the Jewish person that heard that, he's not thinking about heaven of heavens. He's thinking about this place of blessing. And Jesus says, I'm going to go there with you. So some people teach, uh, and I just, I'm just telling you, I'm not saying this is a fact, but some people teach that Jesus died and went with this man, this thief on the cross to this place of called Hades that he's describing here, that this place where paradise is on one side and, 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 and suffering or whatever is on the other side. And he, takes those who are in paradise with him and he leads them in triumphant procession to be with him forever. And those who are on the other side see this and are left there waiting judgment. That's a picture. There's some text that could support that, uh, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. That's if you want to know more about it, find me after and I can tell you. Ephesians chapter four kind of hints at that language in verse eight through ten. You can make a note and go look it up yourself. But. The whole point I'm coming to here is, though I just said all of that, I'm really kind of linking those things together to tell you why people argue it, okay? There's not a lot in Scripture that's super black and white that says, here's what happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. It's not there. Not, not a lot. Not a lot of detail that we can cling to. So we've got to be really careful that we start telling everybody this is what's going to happen if there's not a lot of Scripture to support that. I can tell you, if you die apart from your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to face a shock. I, 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 you are going to face what we're talking about. I can tell you that. You know why I can tell you that? Because it's all over the Scripture. It's all over the Scripture. I can tell you that. What is next immediately? Uh, what it looks like, where it is, those kind of things. I, I can't jump into that immediately because it doesn't lay it out in great detail. So... What I believe is we got a parable here 
a parable of sorts. It's a little bit different. And he's using something that's very familiar in order to make a very solid point to them. So I think that some of these things are real, but he's telling it in a parable way. So back in the story, is this issue here a matter of wealth and poverty? Like one's wealthy and one's poor. And is that what they did wrong? You know, because that looks like it. That's where they end up. But now that's not the issue. The issue is reward. One of them is putting all of his investment in his reward on earth. And one of them is seeking the Lord as his reward. It doesn't outright say that, but we know that because of the way that things ended up. Even though he was poor on earth, he was still seeking the Lord as his reward. And the end of the story, we'll get to, Josh read it earlier, but that shows that this is really about faith in in God and less about whether they were wealthy or not. The issue here is not that the man's wealthy. The issue is the man has no concern for the suffering at his own gate. That's the problem. It's not about the man having money. It's about the man at his gate that he doesn't care about. He's got a heart issue, a serious heart issue. And Jesus gives this detailed description of both of these guys. I mean, really detailed. And the Pharisees then would see this rich man as blessed, which is really sad because in our world, there's a lot of churches and preachers that would see this, see and say the same thing. Man, he all that money he's got, the way he's dressed, he's provided for. There's always food on his table. God would never allow him to suffer. He's great. They would also turn around and see the poor guy outside as in sin and cursed by God, needing to repent because God would never let him suffer. He should never be like that. He should never have a hard time. And Jesus is telling this parable, and these dudes are latching onto this surely. As he's telling the story. And when Jesus says dogs are licking his sores. I mean. That's telling you that probably part of his body is dying. Maybe some extremities. He doesn't even feel that these dogs are doing it. But these are not pets. These are wild dogs. They're probably sizing him up. Licking his sores means they're thinking about whether they can eat him or not. Now that might come as a shock to us. Because every dog we know is a pet. Uh, I've been to Israel. Molly and I got to worship with a congregation in southern Israel that was in the desert. They've been exiled by the Jews because they were Christians. They were Jewish people, but they've been exiled in this community and they weren't allowed to meet anywhere, not even in homes. The community had signed an ordinance to, to prevent congregating in homes just to keep this church from growing. So they ended up going to a park. So they would set up, uh, a pop up chairs in the park and lay out a blanket and Molly and I worshiped with them. It was awesome. I mean, their music was a trumpet player. You know, I mean, it was the way it went. But we had, I remember them saying, keep an eye on the kids, keep the kids close because there are dogs that will drag the kids off. And I was like, wow, like that don't even make sense. But then sure enough, and I've got a picture, I didn't bother to find it, but I got a picture where you could see these dogs running kind of in the distance uh, on the edge of the woods in this park that we're meeting in. So, This is what Jesus is talking about. This is the kind of situation this guy is in. And Lazarus, it says, was laid. Look at that in the text. Was laid at his gate. That means he was placed there. You actually see this in the Bible a few times. There's people who carry someone who's in suffering to try to get them to hope or to healing. And so this dude is being placed there by others. Probably every day or maybe laid there uh, four days at a time or something like that. And the hope would be that this man or some of his friends or somebody passing by the rich place 
would help him out and should. Because Jewish law required him to. It's not even a matter of alms for the poor. They were required to do that. So these people that were helping get this rich man over here and laying him there, they were honoring the Jewish law by helping their friend or even a stranger in need. They may not have had anything to give them, so they help them get where they hope that they can get help. And this Jewish man that was rich should have been providing, but clearly he wasn't doing that. In Jesus' time, Jewish rulers... Uh, particularly the wealthy rulers, had made themselves extravagantly rich. They floated over the top of the poor. Uh, and they cursed at anybody who was sick and suffering. Like you were obviously despised by God. So look at what their deaths. We'll move on here in just a second. But look at their deaths. It's wild. Lazarus, no mention of a burial. No mention of a funeral. No mention of anything, but he's carried by angels. That's just awesome. Is that going to happen to everybody when they die if they believe in Jesus? I, I don't know. But I think it's pretty cool. I would go with that. I'd take that in a second. You know what I mean? Rich man, on the other hand, uh, it tells you he was buried. He probably had an elaborate funeral. All of the people come for him. It's decked out. It's a parade. It's probably huge, you know. And uh, he's probably even buried in a gold coffin or something. I don't know. I'm making all this up. But I'm saying he's got a parade of sorts in his funeral. But immediately he's in torment. Like that's the very next statement you have. And Jesus doesn't say what killed him. Why not? It don't matter. It's the great equalizer in this story. If you don't hear anything else, hear this right now. Everybody dies. Everybody dies. I don't care if you got a $12 million home in Paradise Valley at the foot of Camelback. You're going to die. It, it don't matter. You can't buy your way out of that. It, it makes no difference. We, we all think, I mean, we watch Red Bull videos or whatever else, and we all think we're indestructible. You know, he could have choked on a grape, and that was the end of it. You know what I'm saying? Our bodies are not as super strong as we think they are. They are in a lot of ways, but at the same time, it takes very little for us to breathe our last, man. Very little for us to breathe our last. And the point of this parable is clear. Listen, if you don't, in your current life, consider what's after your life, you're going to be in for a shock. That's really the point. If, in your current life, if you don't consider what's after, man, you're going to be in a shop. One other note before we move on. Jesus uses Abraham in this story, which for us is a bit weird. But for the Hebrew people, it's not at all. That's the dream. Abraham was the father of the Hebrew people. He was the OG. Like, he's the first one. So for all of the Hebrew people, they they considered it a deeply spiritual thing to associate themselves with Abraham. In fact, uh, in multiple arguments we've already looked at, Jesus has faced people who said, I'm a son, I'm a child of Abraham. Um, so in order to, you know, dying and go to heaven is one thing. But dying and having Abraham scoop you up and stand there with you, be hanging out with you like that personally, Man, they all would have dreamed of that. So this is a huge picture that Jesus is painting of where Lazarus has found himself. And for the record, Abraham was ridiculously wealthy. The Bible tells you that. So once again, this is not about wealth. Abraham was ridiculously wealthy. Uh, look at verse 24. Let's go on. We'll, we'll move quick through the back half of this. 
And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. This is the rich guy that's on the uh, one side who's looked across and seen Abraham and Lazarus. And send Lazarus to dip the end of, of his finger in water and cool my tongue from an anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted and you're in anguish. Uh, Y'all know I coach football, most of you. I was at a football thing all night last night uh, down in Maricopa. Uh, one thing, I don't care if it's football or softball or baseball or any sport, uh, you know, jujitsu, whatever it is, game day is the fun part. It's the training part that's misery. It's the training part that nobody wants to do. It's the training part where you're, you're really just battling through and working hard. And the deal is this. If you haven't trained throughout the week, game day is fixing to be a nightmare. There's one of two things that's going to happen. You're either at, at the least going to sit there on the bench and watch it all go by. Or you're going to go out there at the worst and get hurt. Maybe even crippled. Literally. Because you hadn't trained all week. The fact is, on game day, it's too late. It's too late. Nothing else. You, you don't have time to train anymore. It's too late. You're already in the fight. You're already on the mat. Dude's fixing to break you in half, and that's just the way it is. You hadn't trained for it. It's too late to do anything about it. Your eternity works in a very similar way. At some point, it's done. Like, and at that point, it's too late. It's too late. The suffering that he talks about here, it's eternal. And I can tell you why it's eternal, because they're dead. What's going to happen? They're going to die? They're already dead. They can't, at this point, die again. They're already dead. But they know, this guy knows sorrow. He knows separation. He realizes he's separated. He feels regret. He feels like wasted life. He's concerned for loved ones. I mean, it's in there. It says, am I saying he's a good dude? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he feels all of this. In fact, I'd still argue he's not a good dude. Because even in torment, look what he's doing. Does he ask Abraham, Abraham, send an angel to help. Abraham, forgive me, help. No, send the poor freaking beggar at my gate over here to bring me some water. Send the poor beggar to go tell my family. You know, you see what he's doing? He's still, he's still, even in this moment, God, even in hell, listen, listen, listen. Even in hell, people are still bitter. Jesus said this all the time. That's why he used the phrase, in that place there will be weeping and what else? Gnashing of teeth. You know what that means? I hate you. I hate you. That's what gnashing of teeth means. It's not you're gritting because it hurts so bad. No, no, no. Gnashing means I hate you. So, so this man, even in this place of suffering, is still got significant issues. He mentions flames, all right? And y'all are getting the whole message on hell, but we're almost done. Don't worry. I know it's a heavy one today. Uh, he mentions flames. So again, is this a parable thing? Are our flames literal or figurative? That's a heavily debated thing in theology, but let me just tell you one thing clear about that. I can promise you. I can promise you. If it's not flames, if it's not, 
it's worse. And the reason why is because if we use something figurative, it is to describe something we can't describe. For instance, if we said the gate of heaven is a giant diamond, does God need rocks? The diamond's a rock, if you didn't know that. You know what I'm saying? Does God need a rock? You know? No. Does a diamond have any value to God? No. He created every planet and the solar system. The, you know, he created everything. You think some rock under the ground, that, that has no value. But to us, it does. So we don't, so John doesn't know. He sees heaven. How do I describe this gate? It's, it's amazing. It's mind blowing. I don't even know. The best I can tell you is it looks like a diamond. And to us, we go, ooh, a diamond. Like, I want to go there, you know? So if it's not flames, Flames is the best thing he can come up with to describe how horrible this place is. So don't think that washing that word away makes it any better. That is not the case. Whatever hell is, fire is as good as it gets. And I'm not being heavy. I'm just preaching. Remember what I said before? We're reading Jesus' words. This is Jesus talking, guys. This is not even a disciple. This is Jesus himself saying these things jesus spoke more about heaven i mean hell than heaven or love think about that a minute jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven or love to him it was a real concern it was a, a real concern he was very blunt I'll give you a couple of verses mark nine forty three. i'm not picking this apart don't worry about it just read what he's saying if your hand causes you to sin jesus saying this cut it off it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands. Go to hell to the unquenchable fire. That just means it's eternal. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. Listen to what he's saying here. Is he mean literally tear your eye out? Well, no, he don't mean that. Yeah, he does. Am I telling you to do that? No. But what I'm saying is, he's saying hell is that serious. Hell is that serious. That's what he's saying. That's Jesus. One other thing he says. At one point, he outright says to these religious people, Matthew 23, 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell. Jesus. Jesus. Let's finish our story back in verse 26. Besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. Abraham telling the rich guy this. And none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, the poor the Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. This chasm that he's talking about, that, that's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Um, but it's clearly a barrier. And that's really the point here. After we breathe our last, it's too late. There's no more opportunity. There's a barrier here. It's done. There's no more opportunity. It, there's no chance. And we might get bitter at hearing that. Listen, how many opportunities have you passed up already? This is one thing that I heard a guy once say, and I really appreciate it. It's wild, but it's true. If Jesus, if God gave us 
one million ways to salvation, we would be mad and demand one million and one. That's true. If God gave us one million years to make a decision, we'd be mad and demand one million and one. We 100% would. What, what about, what have you done? You know? You hear it? You're hearing it now? If it concerns you, hey, now's the time. Look at verse 28. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they come into this place. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to him from the dead, they'll repent. And he said, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Only a short while after this, ironically, Jesus amazingly does exactly what they asked and raises a man from the dead. We'll talk about it next week. Guess what his name is? Lazarus. Even the same name. It's not the same guy. Raise them from the dead. You want to know how these people respond? Verse 20, uh, John eleven fifty three says, so from that day on, they made plans to kill him. Hey, if you raise somebody from the dead, they'll believe. Jesus raises somebody from the dead, they plan to kill him. That's just hilarious to me. You just raise him from the dead, your plan is to kill him. So, escape in hell. Let's finish it with this. It comes with three actions right here, and they're all connected to God's word. Three actions, they're all connected to God's word. Hearing, repenting, and becoming convinced or believing. It's the same thing. Hearing... Repenting and becoming convinced. We know it. It's right here in the text. It's not by miracles. It's by the word of God. That's what, when he says Moses and the prophets, that's what he's talking about. That's the whole whole word of God. New Testament was, they're living the New Testament at this moment. So he's talking about Moses, the first five books, and all of the prophets. He's talking about the Bible. He's saying they have the scripture. Miracles are not going to work. Our team, we were talking about this yesterday. Why aren't miracles going to work? You can discredit them, especially in our world. Easy to discredit miracles in our world. Oh, they did that with a gimmick. They did that with a trick. It's an illusion. It's a camera trick. It's whatever else. Or you forget, hey, it's been about 10 years. That never really happened. Did it happen? Did it actually not happen? Is he for real? Is it, is it true? Uh, whatever else. But you can't do that with Scripture. It stands, man. It stands. This book has been around thousands of years. It stands. It doesn't change. People have tried, believe me, and it just keeps going. Recognizing who Jesus is doesn't come from seeing a miracle. It comes from seeing him in in the word. You're reading the word and you realize for God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. And suddenly the light goes on and you're like, No way. Like for me? For me? And then you start to realize who he is. John 5, 39. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's they who bear witness about me. He tells you the scriptures are about me. He says it himself. After his resurrection, he uses scripture to open the eyes of his disciples. Instead of just lighting his face and going, oh, it is I. Instead, he opens the book, Luke twenty four twenty seven. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to these disciples in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He did just what we're doing over the past year and a half. Let me show you myself. 
in all of the Bible. That's how he identified who he was, not with this big, you know, moment or split the sky thing. So I know. All right. It's a heavy one today. It's a heavy one. Um, But here's the good news. Great news. Great news. The gospel. This is what makes the gospel so awesome. Hearing all of that heavy, weighty, horrifying, terrible things. Here it is. You don't have to go there. You don't have to go there. Jesus made it possible that you do not have to go there. He alone took the power of death. It's gone, man. He has it. It belongs to him. He took authority from death in order that death reign over his creation since Adam and Eve no longer has any power. And he redeemed us so that sin can never convict us again. Man, that's the best news of all. Like, when you hear all this talk about hell, man, that's awesome. Because here's the fact. Sin has to have consequences or he's a liar. He told Adam and Eve, you eat it, you die. It die. Death enters the world. You eat it, death enters the world. He's a liar if he doesn't honor that. It has to happen. And, and, and to just accept it anyway would mean he's not a God of love. You know, to just ignore it and excuse it would mean he's a liar. You know, or to just pardon it would mean he's not just. But in fact, he paid for it himself out of extreme love. That's what the cross is. Paid for it himself out of extreme love. Let me give you one more thought and I'm going to shut up here. Probably one of the biggest arguments used is how could a loving God allow such a place to exist? And I get that. I understand the heart behind that. But let me give you a couple of things to think about. First of all, true love never Passively embraces every action, deed, and event. It never says everything's okay with me. That's not love. And you know it. If you had a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, you know. Everything's not okay. You know? So first of all, that's not true. Justice is part of love. It is. It is. Okay? Another thing. Out of great love, he provided a way. That's what the cross is. Out of great love, he provided a way by taking it on himself. So before we beat him up too much, let's look at what he did about it. All right, he, he took it on himself. Another thing, those people who are there in hell or find themselves in hell weren't, weren't dragged kicking and screaming. They're there because they rejected hope. They're there because they, they, they rejected rescue. Why? And the last two things, and these are big for me, why is God always to blame for that? Why would God allow a place like that to exist? Why is God always to blame? Have you sinned today? It's early. I got a start on it. I know I'm at least one up on some of you. I got my start. Why is he to blame? He told Adam and Eve. You know, why is he the one at fault here for the, the fact that this place exists? And finally, asking the question itself, why would a loving God allow such a place to exist, supposes that you're greater than he is. What you're saying is, if I were God, I would never allow such a place to exist. 
And you're supposing that you're God. But let me ask you this. I'm telling you the gospel. The gospel will save people from hell. So, God, how many people have you told the gospel to? You say, God, you're mad at God because he has a place that exists that way. And if you were God, you wouldn't do that. Well, here's the answer. you got to weigh out. How many people have you told? Does it really matter to you as much as you act like it does? So keep those things in mind as you hear that kind of argument. All right? And remember, the biggest point of all is he made a way. He made a way. All right, stand up with me, and we're going to do another song. And if you don't mind, close your eyes for a moment. And uh, again, not not to be dramatic or hide anything, but but I like to take a minute. My, I do too. I mean, I'm not standing here holding a microphone, but my eyes are shut as well. I like to think for a few minutes about the word before we just jump into the next song and I know hopefully we'll be processing it all day, but man, take a minute and just think about the cross. Don't don't think about fire and hell and all of that. Just stop a minute and think about Jesus. Full of love we can't even explain. While we were yet sinners. Allowing himself to be assassinated in the most horrible way on a cross humiliated man I can't even explain that kind of love and and I'm going to tell you right now I know how filthy a sinner I am so it's even heavier on me because I feel like man I'm so not worth that I'm so not worth that Man, and, and the fact that he died in my place is epic, but man, that he got out of a grave, like he, he conquered death. He, death was never going to hold him. He created everything. Death had no right to hold him. He didn't get out of the grave to just show out. He got out of the grave for you. He got out of the grave for me, because I can't. Man, that's the good news. Think about it a minute. Man, how do you respond to that? You you. Man, what, what other response is there except forgive me? Like, Jesus, you can have me. I'll be a missionary. I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll go anywhere you want me. You can have me. The least I can do is give you my life. Save me. Pour your Holy Spirit into me. Guide me. Give me wisdom. Tell him that. You tell him in your own words. You don't, however you want to say it. But I'm challenging you today. Tell him. And I can promise you this. I don't know if it's angels that scoop you up and carry you at death, but I know for a fact that you'll see Jesus welcome you into the place that he's prepared for you. Man, Lord, you're awesome. Thank you for that good news. We worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.